Well, turn with me, please, then, to that passage that we read earlier, John, and chapter uh, 17. And uh, um, I'm sure many of you will know the context here. It's uh, Jesus in uh, the upper room uh, shortly before his crucifixion. The disciples are distraught at what may happen. They're confused. They don't know where to turn. Jesus has this long time with them alone uh, in this room. And the whole passage begins right back in chapter 13, in fact, and uh, uh, with the, the washing of the disciples' feet. And then you have chapters 14 and 15 and 16, quite long chapters, all this long discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's trying to address their fear and their sorrow. He's going to speak of what's going to happen. He talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit, and uh, he outlines to them what will happen, even though he's going to be ripped from them, as it were, physically very shortly. Um, nonetheless, he seeks to comfort their, their souls. And of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit, ultimately what he said was brought to the mind of John who was present and he wrote it down for us in his gospel. But these discourses in those chapters uh, conclude with this great prayer, which is truly the Lord's Prayer. What we talk about the Lord's Prayer, as you've often heard, I'm sure, is really the disciples' prayer, isn't it? Our Father and so on. That short pattern prayer that we may pray. But here, at the climax of his earthly life, just before he goes to the cross, we have the Lord Jesus Christ praying this amazing prayer in John chapter 17. And uh, uh, it speaks to us today so, so powerfully. And you need to bear in mind that when Jesus prayed, he usually prayed on his own. He, he went to a quiet place. We read about that quite a number of times in Scripture. He goes alone on, on his own to pray, to have intimate fellowship with his Father. And yet here, he is praying audibly to his Father in the presence of his disciples. They're hearing his words. Why does he pray audibly? Because he wants them to be heard. Because he wants them to be recorded. Because he wants them, uh, right down all these ages, that even down to where we're sitting here, he wanted them to be known by us and, uh, and to be benefited by us from. So it's a, a tremendous blessing. And it's a glimpse, of course, it's often called the high priestly prayer. And it's called that because Jesus is our great high priest in heaven now. Uh, a high priest makes sacrifices for the people. He's done that once for all on earth. And then the high priest prays for the people continually. And the Lord Jesus Christ continues to pray for his people in glory. The scripture says he ever lives to intercede for us. That's what he's doing now. And you might well ask, what is he praying for? And I think the answer is here. This is the reason he gives us. Just as the disciples' prayer is a pattern prayer, in a sense, this is a pattern prayer. It's a pattern prayer of what the Lord Jesus Christ prays for his people in glory. And so if we just concentrate upon the things that he prays for his people, for his church, it is an encouragement to us and also shows us, of course, what a church should be like because we want to answer his prayers. If he's praying for a certain thing, we should look at ourselves and say, is that true of us? And so when we look, as we're going to do just fairly briefly here this morning, look at the things he prays for his church, we can say these are the characteristics that should always apply to a church. Churches have many different personalities, many different emphases all around the world, even in this area. Uh, there are churches which you probably wouldn't choose to go to, and yet you acknowledge they're Christian churches and God blesses them. And all of these things are amazing. I can't understand that, but there it is. But nonetheless, whatever the flavor, whatever the personality, 
whatever the style of a Christian church, if it's a true Christian church, then these things that Jesus prayed for will characterize that church. And they will do so in every place and in every time. Right down the centuries, these things will be true of a true Christian church. Despite a culture that we could hardly even understand, they will still be true of a Christian church. So let's just look at them uh, together. And uh, really, there's a, quite a long introduction here for all sorts of reasons, but it's really only in verse 13 that Jesus starts to uh, specifically pray for things that should characterize his people. So that's where we're, we're starting. What's the first thing he prays for? Verse 13 of John 17. Then we'll just go through the rest of this prayer. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, says Jesus, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. This is the first specific thing that he prays that should characterize his people. And it's amazing that he does, because they're all as miserable as sin, quite frankly, aren't they? They're so frightened. They're full of terror. This is not something that they feel could be true of them at the moment. And, of course, it should characterize the church of God. Would you think of this as being the first thing that Jesus would pray, the first thing that he thinks of when he lists the things that should characterize the church? Would you think of joy? And perhaps if it isn't the first thing that comes to mind, maybe it's uh, uh, just uh, an indication of how far perhaps we may have moved from the spirit of the early church. Joy. But notice, it's a joy which is not the same as people generally think about when it comes to joy. Um, joy is not just reserved for heaven, as some Christians think. Joy is meant to characterize the people of God on earth. But Jesus is not, as I say, speaking merely of worldly joy. What does he say here in verse 13? That they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's not talking about mere happiness and joyfulness that you might have at a, I don't know, a birthday party or whatever it may be. He's talking here about his joy. What, what gave joy to the heart of the Lord Jesus? Why was Jesus joyful? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, this isn't, a, I'm, I haven't got time to ask you for all the things you might think of. What do you think would give joy to the heart? That's the question um, that I'm just sort of asking myself. Well, what gave Jesus joy was well, a lot of things. The joy of knowing that there was a plan of salvation. The joy of knowing that he was instrumental in bringing it to pass. The joy in knowing on this particular occasion that he was about to go to the cross. Yes, even in the horror of it all, that he in his human nature uh, just rebelled against. Joy of knowing that he's going to complete the plan of salvation. Joy of knowing that he was obedient to God's will. Joy of a, a clear conscience. Joy of fellowship with the Father that he's experiencing even as he prays. And all of these things can be ours. He wants the, his joy to be ours. These things should characterize the church. The joy of Christ should characterize our church. The joy of knowing there's a plan of salvation. The joy of knowing that we're part of it. The joy of knowing that God will use us and can use us and does use us. The joy of obedience to God's will. You know the joy of knowing when you're doing something, even though perhaps your flesh is re rebelling against it. The joy of a, a clean conscience. You know that. When you pray to God and ask for forgiveness, 
And you know how much better you feel when you're determined to, to please the Lord? The joy of all of these things, the joy of fellowship with the Father, which you experience in church, or when you're worshipping the Lord God on your own, or even when you're out walking in the countryside or whatever it may be, the joy of fellowship with the Father, all these things, they're just a handful of examples of the things that can and should and do give us the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, He's incredibly concerned during this time with his disciples on this last evening that they should be filled with joy. I mean, just looking back at these passages, if you look at chapter 15 and verse 11, for example, it says, I have told you this so that my joy, there it is again, may be in you and that your joy as a result may be complete. Or if you turned on to chapter 16 and verse 24, he says, until now you have not asked for anything in my name, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Joy of knowing answered prayer there in that particular example. But you can see in this, in this scene where everyone's distraught, he says, no, joy, joy, joy. It should characterize the people of God. It's a command, isn't it, a scripture? Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of disaster, because it is not the joy of the world we're talking about now, which you could never have in those circumstances. It's the joy of the Lord, and you can have it, because the joy of the Lord is your strength in circumstances where you desperately need it. So you can see always we can rejoice before the Lord, because it's not the joy of the world. We can rejoice and have the joy of Jesus all the time. A joyless Christian should be a contradiction in terms. We are commanded to rejoice, is joylessness one of the sins you confess? That's the first thing that Jesus prays for. The second thing he says should characterize the church of Jesus, the church of, of God, is, is, is holiness. Now, just read a little passage from verse 14, the next verse. Here it is, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. Just stay there. Sanctify them. That means set them apart for holy use, just like all the vessels in the temple were, were sanctified and could only be used, therefore, in the worship of God. They shouldn't, you can't just put anything in them and drink from it. No, no, no. These, these goblets and whatever it was that we used, these are all specially sanctified. Sanctify them. Put them apart for holy use. And then make them holy. That's what sanctify means here in, in, in this case. Sanctify them. And what Jesus is saying here, this is only going to happen if we are not of the world. He says repeatedly here in this passage, we are physically in the world, but we must not be spiritually of the world. You've heard that phrase before, in the world but not of the world. And of course it comes from this passage. We are physically and culturally in the world. But we spiritually are not of the world. And it's important to understand that as far as we can in the things that we, we do. And, and, and we need divine protection, uh, praise Jesus here. Or we will be contaminated by the godless values of this world. Holiness, of course, is the the characteristic of God that is most mentioned in the Bible. Therefore, holiness must characterize the church, which is 
formed in the name of God, in the name of our Savior. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews says that without holiness, we shall not see the Lord. This is a, a vital characteristic of the church of God. We need to be holy. But it's not promoted, of course. True holiness is not promoted by making a long list of thou shalt nots. Um, often used to see you go into an old church building, you, you see on a, on a board uh, the Ten Commandments listed there. Um, don't want to spend time on this, but you know, I don't think this is you know, what we want to be confronted with. We're not under the law, we're under grace. But we are here to be wholly set apart from the world and not of the world. And, and just you know, a lot of thou shalt nots and legalism, that just uh, uh, promotes hypocrisy, doesn't it? As we well know in ourselves. But we should instead realize who we are. We are new creatures. Our citizenship is not in this world. We don't belong to this world. We belong to heaven. We're looking for a holy city that is to come. We are, as the scripture says, we are aliens. We don't belong to this worldly culture. We are pilgrims. We're not going to stay here. We're passing through. And we need to have this attitude when it comes to the world. What is worldliness in, these biblical, in this biblical sense? Well, uh, ultimately we have nothing in common with worldliness. We don't have anything in common with the world's aims or motives or goals. When John speaks of the world here, or when Jesus speaks of the world here, he's speaking in terms of a, an ethical system which is built up in deliberate opposition to the Lord. It's a, a whole culture which is against God. And that characterizes uh, all of us before we are saved, before we come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and are liberated from the chains that uh, bind us down to uh, these anti-God uh, motives. And uh, we need to stand apart from that, realize it and stand apart. As I say, we need to be part of the culture in which we live. We don't want to be weird and outlandish in the way that we conduct ourselves. But we are part of the culture, but we need to stand for the things that are clearly godly and stand against those things which are not. Holiness is the working out of a whole new way of living. And we need to dare to be different. And the promise here is that the Lord will protect us because that's what Jesus prays for here. So we need to be a holy people in that sense. And that's the second thing he's praying for. The third thing he's praying for and that should characterize every true church of Jesus down the ages, wherever it may be, is truth. And we stop just at the beginning of verse 17. Let me read the whole of verse 17, which is a wonderful verse. Verse 17 of John 17, easy reference to remember, one of my favorite verses. Sanctify them by the truth, or in the truth perhaps would be better. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And uh, if you want a little verse to hang up on the fridge or something, this is a great verse. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. From holiness, Jesus prays, he goes, fades instantly into the idea of truth. The Holy Spirit, now this is such an important thing, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us only in the environment of the truth. And that truth is the word of God, the scriptures, as we have them, the word of God. The Bible is, as we know, I trust, utterly reliable, 
totally sufficient for all our ultimate needs and is the ultimate authority that we have. The written word is not divided from the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit did not choose to make us holy apart from the scriptures. He didn't spend all his time over the centuries making sure that the Bible written through human authors was exactly as he wanted it to be for it only to become irrelevant. The Holy Scripture is the environment in which he creates holiness because the Holy Spirit created the scriptures and he imparts holiness, the clues in the name. The Holy Spirit does these things through his instrument that he created through the word of God. The Apostle Paul says very much the same thing. John says it more tersely here. The Apostle Paul says it more theologically in a sense when he's writing in Ephesians 5. He says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. How? Cleansed by the washing with water, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, through the word. Cleansed by the Spirit of God, made holy by the Spirit of God through the word. And why am I stressing this? Because it's vital to grasp today, and many Christians don't seem to understand it, that um, the Word and the Spirit belong intimately together. Sometimes the Word and, and the Spirit are, are presented as almost being in opposition, and the Word is somehow downgraded and is uh, put up there as a sort of reference book which you may occasionally need, but basically the Holy Spirit speaks instantly to us all the time, and if he does that and just deals with everything, zapping everything for us every time we just apply to him, what is the point of the Bible? And that is practically what can happen if a church adopts an attitude like that. The Word is downgraded, and uh, it's almost as though uh, 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 the Holy Spirit... Is, is supposed to liberate us from the chains of Scripture, as though Scripture itself uh, naturally leads to some sort of legalism. But that's not what Jesus is saying here at all, is he? He's saying here, depart from the Word, and we depart from the environment in which the Holy Spirit operates. So there is this intimate connection between holiness and truth, and the way that we live our lives. Sanctify them in the truth, or by the truth, your word is truth. So it couldn't be simpler and couldn't be more tersely stated, this uh, very important concept. So there it is. That's the third thing. So joy, holiness, truth. The fourth thing that Jesus prays should characterize the church wherever, whenever, is the concept of mission. Look at that in verse 18. Jesus says this, and this is an amazing statement, almost beyond belief. As you sent me into the world, he says to his father, I have sent them into the world. What? Isn't it almost beyond belief that the Lord Jesus Christ compares our task with his? He says to his father, just as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. What's this all about? Well, it's all about the completion of the work that Jesus came to do. He died on the cross, his finished work. But the bringing in of all the people down the ages of time, that's being left to the church. In the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, who has been sent. But it is our work. It's the same work. It is a seamless work. 
Christ has uniquely done what he had to do upon the cross. We couldn't have done that. But it is the same work. We are sent out to complete the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as you sent me, Father, I'm sending them. It's seamless. And this is the mission that we have. This is such an important reason for why we're sent to the earth. This, this, this earth is not simply a waiting room for heaven. And sometimes you get churches where that seems to be their attitude. You know, we'll get through the best we can. We're just a little sanctuary away from the storm and we'll comfort one another until the Lord decides to take us home. Why on earth he doesn't take us home now, I have no idea. He'd save himself a lot of trouble and grief. And he'd save us a lot of trouble and grief at the same time. Why doesn't Jesus take you to heaven the moment he converts you? Because he has things to do in your own heart and life, but because he wants you to complete his mission. We have a purpose here on earth. This is not the waiting room of heaven. It is vital, this time on earth, however long or short it is for any of us, it is a vital, vital part of God's plan for us and for our lives. This is his church down below. The church will one day be glorious, but here it's militant. The church militant, as it was historically it was called, was there to be fight the battle, to be God's army, it's good soldiers of Jesus Christ, growing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, advancing, invading the world that has fallen, and taking territory for God, increasing the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Your kingdom come is not simply a prayer for Jesus, a prayer for Jesus to return. It's a prayer for his power to be exercised in his earth down below. And we are called to be part of that and part of that great mission. That's the purpose of what it is. So that's why he says this. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now if you just turn over to chapter 20, if you've got your Bibles open, and verse 21, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples for the first time. And, and, and look at what's being said here. Verse 21 of John 20. Again, Jesus said, peace with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that casts further light on our verse. In other words, Jesus says to the disciples exactly what he has prayed to his Father three days earlier. Why does he do that? They'd already heard him. He gives this as a now a command and he explains what's going to happen. And it, it, sort of as he breathes upon them, it's a kind of foretaste of Pentecost. He's showing them the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them to equip them for this task as he sends them on their mission of increasing the kingdom of God, of growing the church of God. That's what he's, he's doing here. He shows them, in a, in a sense, the main reason why they're soon to be sent the promise sanctifying Holy Spirit. So we may complete the work of building his church. And, you know, I like this idea of mission because, um, you know, we're sent. It shows that we're sent. When we think of mission, it shows that, you know, it gives us direction, but it also shows us where we've come from. We must have been sent by somebody. When the postman, or the more likely these days, the Amazon delivery man, knocks on your door at some unearthly hour, early in the morning, before you got up, in other words, before 10 o'clock, 
when you do, you don't you don't go down and berate him or her. You don't say, "What are you doing waking me up?" Because you know that they've been sent. Postman doesn't apologize for knocking on your door. And yet the authority that sends us as the people of God, as the church of God, is far higher than the authority of the royal mail or whatever it may be. The authority that sends us is the living God. And what we're delivering is far more important than any delivery we're going to get in our lives here on earth through our front door. We're not to be apologetic. We're not to apologize. Yes, of course, be wise in the way you present the gospel. But never apologize for the gospel. Never apologize for the fact that you, you need to speak to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. Be wise. Be gentle. Be appropriate. But at least be on the mission. Somehow, each one of us, not all of us have the same gifts to do the same thing in the same way. But as a church, this is the point, as a church, we should have all the gifts necessary and all are needed to advance this mission of Christ and complete his work and build the church of God. So we need to get on with the work and uh, get the job done. And unfortunately, down the ages, that's what the church understood, isn't it? And that's why he prays. He says, this should characterize every true church of mine is going to be involved in mission. Two more things. The fifth thing he prays for is unity. This is one of the great themes, of course, of this high priestly prayer. And in verse uh, 20, we read, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, he's just spoken about mission. That automatically leads to unity, because without unity in the church of God, mission is destroyed. Which is why, historically, Satan has concentrated on seeking to sow disunity within the people of God, whether local churches or between churches. That is what he sought to do, because he knows if he can destroy unity, then the mission will be annulled. It will be completely irrelevant. That's why you look twice in this. Look at verse 21. Why, why is he praying for unity? Um, he says, you know, may they be uh, united so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then again in verse 23 then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, etc., etc. So he's, he's deliberately linking this prayer for unity with the mission of the church. It's not just something, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we all, you know, were united in every way. No, he's saying it's vital because of the mission that you have. And it should characterize the people of God in all sorts of ways. And um, nonetheless, of course, Christian unity has been much misunderstood down the ages. Jesus is not merely speaking of some sort of outward uh, structural unity, I don't know, some tight denomination or whatever it might be. That didn't exist, of course, in the early church, did it? In uh, the early church, there was exponential growth for the first three centuries, but very little organizational unity. And then later, if you know your church history, uh, you'll know that under uh, Constantine and through succeeding centuries, the church was 
increasingly centralized until there was literally one ecclesiastical body covering the whole of Europe and beyond. And there was organizational unity par excellence. But uh, what do we call those times? We, we call them the Dark Ages. Why do we call them the Dark Ages? Because it was an era of false faith and of low morality. The church was not doing what it should have been doing at all, despite the fact that it had this mechanical unity. Jesus isn't praying for that. He isn't praying either for mere conformity. Sometimes churches say, well, everybody should be alike and think exactly the same and, and do exactly the same things and, uh, and whatever. And that isn't what Jesus is praying for here. He, he doesn't want an identical pattern of look-alike, act-alike believers. In fact, that's the opposite of what he wants. Christians need to be able to express their God-given individuality and their diversity. And uh, churches too, I think I mentioned it earlier, churches too have different personalities, don't they? You must have noticed that if you've gone to different churches. A church itself is a body that has a, a certain uh, personality and, 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 uh, and style. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as everything else that's essential is present. Indeed, it's necessary to cater for the diversity of people that there are. But what Jesus is praying for here is unity of heart and mind and spirit, which is something which will astound the world because they will, what, what should happen is this, they, they recognize our sometimes extreme natural differences even within the same church. And they say, what on earth has brought these people together? And ultimately, if God is working in their hearts, they're forced to accept and acknowledge a supernatural explanation. There's nothing else that could possibly bring these people together. That's why diversity, unity in, in diversity is important for this very reason, because it speaks to people out there. They say, what on earth has brought these people together? These people are just social background that's different or whatever it may be, and, and uh, there they are, overcoming all the taboos of the world and natural choices and so on. Uh, any other club or society in the world, it's the same type of people with the same interests and they join together. There's nothing wrong with that. But the church is different because the only thing that unites us is our love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that we know that we're brothers and sisters in him. And the only way the world can, can see why we're together is to have to understand that, you see? So that has an evangelistic edge, doesn't it? And, and unity and diversity in the church under God is a wonderful thing. They wouldn't be surprised if we were at loggerheads with one another because they're surprised to see us together at all. But when we are together, all with our main passion focused on the same thing, it forces them, as I say, to acknowledge a divine or supernatural explanation. That's a, 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 an amazing thing. Ultimately, of course, our unity with each other, we know it stems from our unity in Christ. That's why... Um, uh, Jesus talks here about being like us, just as I am in you and you are in me and so on. It, the, the, the Trinity is our model here. The, the, the diversity in the unity of the Godhead is a reflection of what should be true in the church. And that's obviously right at the base of it, the fundamental truth of it. That's how it's explained. That's how the Holy Spirit does it. That's our model, but uh, that's why unity is important.
But let's come then to the last thing. What's the last thing he prays for that should actually characterize the church of Jesus Christ in every place and every age? And in many ways, well, it is the most important thing of all. Verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. See how he leaves us to last? Because it is so fundamental. Here is the greatest mark of all. It gives meaning to all the others. Without love, a church can never be what God intends it to be. You remember the church at Ephesus where these sort of divine letters from heaven were dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and you get these letters to the churches, don't you? And this letter to Ephesus, which when you start reading, you say, wow, what a great church that is. Sound in doctrine, all this sort of stuff. Wish we had a church like that. But then, wow, it's the only church that is threatened with having its lampstand removed, threatened of being disowned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason that's given in that little letter in Revelation 2 is that it has forsaken its first love. And because of that, everything else was going to fall to the ground. And if you notice, again, you know, this passage holds, this evening starts in John 13. If you look at the way John 13 starts, you know, here's, here's the, we just looked at the last verse of being in the upper room. Look at the first room. The uh, first verse, verse, thir- verse 1 of chapter 13. Here's the introduction. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this whole passage is like bookends on this passage. The first bookend, beginning of chapter 13 beginning of these discourses, ending with this great prayer, begins with a statement which in context seems strange. Why does he say this? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then the last verse, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And then, of course, in the middle, (laughs) just to emphasize this point, chapter 13, verse 34, a new command I give you. This is all in the discourses on the night before he was betrayed and goes to the cross. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a mission purpose here as well. By our love, see how they love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And um, he wants people to see this and be amazed. Now, it seems to me, as I draw to a close, the preeminence of love is seen in relation to the other essential marks that Christ has been praying for. You remember the first one we looked at was joy. 
What's joy without love? Um, joy without love is mere selfish pleasure-seeking. You could describe it in other ways. What's holiness? That's the second thing he prayed for. What's holiness without love? It's just self-righteousness. It's just the, um, the pseudo-holiness of the Pharisees who were prepared to murder Christ simply because he didn't conform to their standards. You remember that. What's, what's, the third thing was truth. What's truth without love? I mean, truth and love must belong together. They're put together so often in the scriptures as though you know, we just cannot bear to think of truth without love. What is truth without love? Well, again, you know, there are churches that are characterized like this. It, it leads to, um, uh, to, to bitter orthodoxy. This may have been what was the case in Ephesus. It, it leads to sound teaching that wins nobody. You may know churches like that. It's just so unattractive, but it's far worse than that. Love is missing. What's the, third, the fourth thing, mission. Can you have mission without love? I think you can. Mission without love is just a kind of um, religious imperialism where, where things are set up just, you know, we've got to go out and, you know, save souls and like scalps and put our own label upon them and uh, just try and make them like us, cultic in its um, particular predilections. And then... The last thing we mentioned was unity, or the last thing that Jesus mentioned and prayed for was unity. Can you have unity without love? Well, I think we'll have hinted at that already, but certainly you can. Unity without love is the result of a sort of tyranny within a church, a church held together perhaps by hierarchical structures or the fear of stepping out of line. And again, there are churches like that. Only love is missing. And yet when love is missing, everything else is destroyed. And yet, the reverse is also true. In other words, where love is present, all the other essential marks of a Christ-like church that Jesus prays for here inevitably follow. So, for example, love for God, if you really love God, it leads to joy. Love for Christ, if you really want to be his disciple, leads to holiness doesn't it? Love for the Word, the Bible, the Scriptures, leads to truth. Love for the world leads to mission <coughs> because you care enough to want to go and bring them to Christ. And love for our brothers and sisters in the church leads to unity, true unity. Love is the motivation which creates all the other things that Jesus prays for in his church. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that will mean that I myself may be in them. That's the prayer. The prayer that the Father's love for the Son and the Son himself may truly be in us as the church of God, that we, we may be the kind of church that right now Jesus is praying that we might be. So let's take this great high priestly prayer seriously. 
measure ourselves against it and seek God's help where we may be failing in any aspect.